Hello, everyone. We'll start the presentation in about a minute. Hello everyone and welcome to today's Safety and Health webcast, your written HASCOM program, how to make sure it's OSHA compliant, presented by JJ Keller. This is Alan Ferguson, Associate Editor at Safety and Health Magazine. I'll moderate today's presentation. First, I'd like to thank you all for joining us and on behalf of the National Safety Council, whose employees are currently working away from the office, we hope that you, your loved ones, and all the people in your lives are remaining safe and healthy wherever they are. We'll start the presentation in a couple minutes, but first there are some housekeeping items. As a disclaimer, the views of today's speaker and organization are their own and do not necessarily affect those in the National Safety Council or Safety and Health Magazine. Any mention of a commercial enterprise, product, or publication does not mean the council or the magazine endorses those items. After today's presentation, we'll conduct a question and answer session with our speaker. Ask a question, click the Q&A button at the bottom of your screen and type your question and click the send button. Please feel free to ask your question at any time during the presentation. You don't have to wait for the Q&A to begin. We'll try to answer as many questions as possible. We might not get to every question. The good news is that any unanswered questions will be forwarded to today's sponsor. After this presentation, you'll be asked to complete a brief evaluation survey, and I'll tell you more about that a little later. This webcast will be archived, so you can access it after today's live event. To view this webcast and all of our past webcasts, please go to safetyandhealthmagazine.com events. With that, let's introduce our speaker. Lisa Newberger is an editor at J.J. Keller, specializing in workplace safety and environmental topics, focusing primarily on hazardous waste. She's the lead editor for J.J. Keller's Environmental Alert Newsletter and the Comprehensive Environmental Compliance Manual, which helps employers negotiate the complex regulatory landscape. Again, we'd like to thank you all for tuning into this presentation. Lisa, whenever you're ready, go ahead and take it away. All right, thank you so much. And thanks everyone for joining us today. I uh, just want to, to mention that today's webcast uh, is sponsored by the J.J. Keller Hascom Chemical Safety Management Service. With this service, you can get help from J.J. Keller experts to manage your chemical inventory and FDS library. You can ensure proper labeling, and it saves you a ton of time. It also gives you the confidence that it's done right and that you are in compliance. And this service provides support and guidance for those core areas of your HASCOM program. So on behalf of the J.J. Keller HASCOM Chemical Management Service, Welcome to today's webcast. Here's just a little picture uh, so you can see what I look like. And uh, Rachel was, was going to join us today. She had some technical difficulties. Mm -hmm. So I know that she feels uh, disappointed that she wasn't able to join us. So let's get started. The Hazard Communication Written Program routinely makes OSHA's list of top 10 violations. Last year, fiscal year 2020, 
It was the most frequently cited violation in general industry. It had over 2,200 citations, whether it's the, the lack of a program, a program that's not current, or an inadequate program year after year, the written program remains a top violation. And that's true even though HAFCOM has been a part of OSHA's regulations for decades now. So today, we're, I'll cover what you need to include in your written program to be in compliance. So let's look at that agenda. Today, we'll talk about the scope of the hazard communication standard uh, regarding who's covered, who is exempt. We'll talk about what has to be in your written program. Uh, we'll look at a breakdown of each requirement and evaluate your written program. We'll look at uh, state plan states and how that might be a little bit different. We'll look at some common trouble spots and we'll also look at a checklist for compliance. So all types of chemicals from cleaning fluids to paint to pesticides, they're all produced in workplaces and, and may be used in workplaces downstream. While these chemicals have utility and benefits in their applications, they also have the potential to cause adverse effects. These adverse effects include both health hazards, uh, such as uh, the ability to cause cancer, and then physical ha hazards, such as flammability. In order to protect your employees from these effects and to reduce the occurrence of chemical source illnesses and injuries, your employees need information about the hazards of the chemicals they use, as well as the recommended protective measures. To ensure chemical safety in the workplace, information about the identities and hazards of the chemicals must be available and they have to be understandable to employees. OSHA's, ha OSHA's hazard communication standard requires you to communicate this information. When hazard information is supplied to employees, they can participate in and support the protective measures that you have in place. They have the right and the need to know this information so that they can take steps to protect themselves when necessary. In order to understand the HAZCOM standard and the written program requirement, you need to first understand what a hazardous chemical is. The HAZCOM standard defines hazardous chemical as any chemical which is classified as a physical hazard or a health hazard, a simple asphyxiant, combustible dust, pyrophoric gas, or hazard not otherwise classified. Now the term health hazard and physical hazard are defined at 1910.1200 in paragraph C. A health hazard or physical hazard is classified as posing one of the hazardous effects listed in their columns here on this slide. Hazard refers to an inherent property of a substance that's capable of causing an adverse effect. Chemical exposure can cause or contribute to many serious adverse health effects such as cancer, sterility, heart disease, lung damage, and burns. Some chemicals are also physical hazards and have the potential to cause fires, explosions, and other dangerous incidents. 
A hazardous chemical also may be classified as a simple asphyxiant, combustible dust, pyrophoric gas, or hazard not other, otherwise classified, sometimes called an HNOC. Those terms are defined in 1910-1200. Also, combustible dust is defined by a directive from OSHA, a compliance directive, or CPL, and that is CPL 03-0008. So you can look that one up. With some exceptions, if your employees are exposed to hazardous chemicals, you're covered under the HAZCOM standard and you must develop a written program. The standard defines exposure or exposed to mean that an employee is subjected in the course of employment to a chemical that is a physical or health hazard and includes potential, uh, for example, uh, accidental or possible exposure. Now, subjective in terms of health hazards includes any route of entry, uh, for example, inhalation, ingestion, skin contact or absorption. All employers who fall under the HAZCOM standard must develop, implement, and maintain a hazard communication program unless they're otherwise exempted. And this requirement applies whether your company generates the hazard or the hazard is generated by other employers on the work site. In fact, employers on multi-employer work sites who do not use hazardous chemicals, but whose employees are exposed to the chemicals used by other employers on the work site, they're required to have a program and train their employees on the hazards of the chemicals in their work areas. Um, we'll, we'll get to that a little bit more uh, in detail in just a little bit. Now, I mentioned there are exceptions. Laboratories and operations where chemicals are, are only handled in sealed containers, um, such as a warehouse. They don't need to have a written hazard, comp, hazard communication program, um, but they do have other responsibilities. So it doesn't have to be written, but there are other things that they will have to do. And we'll, of course, get into that in just a little bit. Now, certain hazardous substances are regulated by other agencies. So OSHA has exempted them from coverage by the HAZCOM standard, and they don't need to be included in your written program. So, uh, we get a lot of questions on, on what's considered an article, and the standard defines an article as a manufactured item other than a fluid or particle, and it, it's formed to a specific shape or a design during manufacture. It has an end use function dependent uh, in whole or in part on its shape or design during the end use, and it, it can't release more than very small quantities of a hazardous chemical or pose a physical hazard or health risk to employees under normal conditions of use. Now, it may be difficult to define what's considered normal conditions of use. Uh, an employer may have uh, a manufactured item that meets the definition of an article, um, but if it's burned, it produces a, a hazardous byproduct. The question then becomes, is burning normal use for the product? And if burning occurs during its normal use and more than trace amounts of hazardous byproducts are produced, well, then it can't be exempted as an article. So uh, 
Also, normal use does not include incidental exposure. If a hazardous chemical can be expected to be released only when the item is repaired, that's not considered part of its normal condition of use. Then the item is considered an article under the HAZCOM standard and is exempted. So examples would be things like stainless steel tables, um, vinyl upholstery, um, and tires. Those are all kind of considered articles. So basically, if the product will be processed in some way after leaving the manufacturing site, um, say it's going to be heated or welded or, or glued or sawed, and a hazardous chemical could be emitted uh, in that process, then probably it's not going to qualify for the article exception. Another question that, that often comes in uh, concerns consumer products. So the HACCOM standard does not cover consumer products. Those are things like a kitchen cleanser or, or Windex or something like that. Um, those products are used in the workplace in such a way uh, that it's not a greater exposure to the employee than the typical consumer would experience. Now, this exception is based on how the, the chemical or the product is, is actually used in the workplace rather than on how the, the chemical manufacturer intends the, the product to be used. For instance, if an employee uses kitchen cleanser to clean the sink in the break room twice a week, that's considered normal con consumer exposure. But if that employee cleans all of the sinks in all the building's bathrooms every day, that's going to exceed normal consumer exposure. And then HAVCOM would apply. And that includes the need for an FDS for that product. And the chemical would need to be listed in the written program. Now, you also don't need to worry about the HAZCOM standard for items in first aid cabinets because drugs that are intended for personal consumption by employees in the workplace are also exempted. If your operations and your chemicals are not entirely exempted and you're left with some covered hazardous chemicals that your employees are exposed to, then you must develop a written HAVCOM program. Simply put, a written HAVCOM program is a record of what your organization has done and will do to comply with the HAVCOM standard. It provides the necessary hazard information to employees so that they can participate in and support the protective measures that your organization has in place. Now your program doesn't have to be lengthy or complicated. In companies that have few hazardous chemicals or few exposed employees, you know, a very basic HAVCOM program uh, will probably do just fine. But it should provide enough details to assess whether a good faith effort is being made to train and inform employees. Now you can maintain your program either on paper or in electronic format, but the kicker is employees have to be able to access it. If your employee's job assignment requires travel between various uh, locations at your company, well, you can keep your, the written program at a primary work location. And then finally, the program has to be available on request not just to employees, but also to their designated representatives, say that the union rep, and then any OSHA officials 
that ask for it or, or state officials that ask for it. Okay, so let's take a poll question here and uh, see where you are in your HAPCOM program. So is your written HAPCOM program up to date? Um, and you may want to consider things such as new chemicals, new hazards, um, updated hazards from chemicals currently in use, changes in process, processes that affect exposures, and required changes to PPE or training. Um, and we'll talk more about those as we go further in the presentation. All right, so hopefully you've had a chance to take this poll. And uh, let's go ahead and see what our results are. Okay, so 57% of you say that your program is up to date, so that's excellent. Um, hopefully we'll still give you something here that so you can uh, use for your program going forward. 15% of you say that, uh, nope, your, your program is not up to date. So again, hopefully that I can share some things with you that, that will help you out. And 28% of you are not sure. So again, um, this uh, going forward will give you some, some information you can use. So thank you everyone for taking that poll. And let's go on to the next question. All right. So you want to be sure to appoint a coordinator for your program. Without an overall coordinator, critical program elements could be overlooked. So your coordinator will have the overall responsibility for developing the, the chemical inventory, uh, organizing the safety data sheets, the SDSs, setting up employee training, updating files on chemicals that are present in the workplace, and processing requests for information from employees and from OSHA. The coordinator should know how the program was implemented through careful documentation, and this person should be able to answer questions that OSHA may have. The person designated for overall program coordination should then identify staff to be responsible for particular activities. This would be, say, giving someone the, the uh, responsibility for maintaining the SDSs. Now, in some cases, these activities may already be part of a current job assignment. Um, for example, site supervisors, they're frequently responsible for training and ensuring that SDSs are available. Now, it's critical that you cover all the required program elements. Your written program has to address all the things that you see on this slide. So you have to address labels and uh, other forms of warning. You have to make sure your SDSs are, are up to date. You have to have employee information and training. Um, maintain the chemical inventory. Um, address multi-employer work sites. Look at the hazards of non-routine tasks that you may have. And then look at the hazards associated with chemicals in unlabeled pipes and employees' work areas. So you may be wondering, all right, what's a non-routine task? Well, there may be tasks to be performed on occasion that will expose employees to different chemical hazards than they're used to. And it also may require new or novel control measures. 
for example, in a manufacturing facility, it might be necessary to periodically drain and clean out reactor vessels. Uh, other examples of non-routine tasks include confined space entry and other tank cleaning. Now, employees may be exposed to cleaning chemicals that are not normally in the workplace, and the usual controls for the process may not protect them. So personal protective equipment may have to be used. Your program must address how you'll handle those situations and make sure that your employees uh, that are involved in those have the necessary information to stay protected. All right, and that last bullet on the slide, work activities may be performed by employees in areas where chemicals are transferred through unlabeled pipes. Prior to starting work in these areas, employees must be informed about the identity and hazards of the chemicals in the pipes, as well as any precautionary measures. Your program has to address how you'll inform employees of those hazards and what those precautionary measures are. All right, so let's break down each of the elements you need to include in your program. And uh, first we'll look at what you should include when it comes to labels and other forms of warning. Your program should designate the name or the job title of the person responsible for ensuring labeling of shipped containers and in-plant containers. Chemical manufacturers and importers are required to provide labels on shipped containers with the product identifier, signal word, pictograms, hazard statements, precautionary statements, and then the name, address, and phone number of the responsible party. So when you receive a hazardous chemical from a supplier, all of that information should be located on the container. Um, there could also be supplemental inform information on there, and that's all right. Now, in your program, you'll also want to describe any in-house labeling system that you use. Um, and, and you may find it helpful to include samples of these labels. As the employer, you're required to ensure that covered containers in the workplace are labeled. So you can use the same label from the supplier. You can use a GHS-style label with or without the responsible party information or you can label workplace containers with alternative labeling systems, something like um, the National Fire Protection Association, NFPA, or Hazardous Materials Identification System, HMIS. Any container of hazardous chemicals in the workplace that does not use the GHS style must at a minimum include the product identifier and general information concerning the hazards of the chemical. In this case, whatever alternative method you choose, your employees need to have access to the complete hazard information in your written program. Now, if you use any labeling alternatives in your facility, such as uh, putting the label information on batch tickets for stationary process tanks, or using posters for air emissions, you need to describe what you're doing in your program. It's also important to list your procedures uh, to review and update label information when necessary. And that's to ensure that, you know, if labels fall off or if they become unreadable, they're immediately replaced. And then also go over how you provide copies of posters used, if you use any, 
um, that you use to inform employees about the law or where HASCOM information is located. As you prepare your written program, now be aware of the secondary container labeling requirements and exceptions. You're not required to label secondary containers into which hazardous chemicals are transferred from a label container if those secondary containers are intended only for the immediate use of the employee who performs the transfer. Now, immediate use means that the hazardous chemical will be under the control of and used only by the person who transfers it from a labeled container. And then again, here's the kicker. You can only have that be in use during the work shift in which it was transferred. So those, all those things have to be in place. It's just, it's in control of the person who did the transfer and then only during that work shift. Uh, if that isn't going to apply, then you can't use that secondary container uh, exception. And that's because, you know, when the shift ends and there's material left in the secondary container, um, or if another employee needs to use it, um, OSHA would consider that employee not protected from the hazards, from the labeling there. So before the chemical can be passed along to another employee or to another shift, that container should be labeled. And at a minimum, that means the label has to contain the product identifier and words, the pictures, the symbols, uh, a combination of all of those things that give you the general information about the chemical hazards. Now, OSHA inspectors are going to check to see that required container labels are readable, are legible, and that they're prominently displayed, and that the product label can be cross-referenced to an SDS. And OSHA will also evaluate any in-house or workplace labeling that you have or any alternative labeling that you may use. Now again, today's webcast is sponsored by the JJ Keller Hascom Chemical Safety Management Service. And with this service, you can get help from JJ Keller experts to manage your chemical inventory and your SDS library, ensure proper labeling and compliance, and we can even review and update your written Hascom program. And uh, we also can provide regular reporting and communication on your Hascom program performance. So if you would like more information on the JJ Keller Hascom Chemical Safety Management Service, please let us know by selecting your interest on the poll that's on your screen. Um, and as a thank you, we'll email a copy of our brand new compliance brief, Hazard Communication, the Right to Know Requirements. And that's a really good compliance brief. All right. Now, uh, a question just came in. Are we required to keep SDSs from a previous pest control company? The insecticides were only used by the pest control company, and we did not keep any on site. So that's kind of a, it's not the easiest question to answer, you know, with a yes or no. It really depends on if your employees uh, were exposed at all to the chemicals from the pest control company. So was that company, did they put things on your lawn and your employees could have been uh, exposed to that chemical? Uh, or were they just, uh, say, putting out, you know, say a, a, a chemical that, that uh, was 
you know, in, in a remote location that, that none of your employees were exposed to. If your employees could have been exposed to that chemical, then you're going to want to uh, keep the SDS or, or some other means of keeping track, um, of keeping a record of that exposure, uh, the, the chemical that the employees were exposed to, because uh, OSHA requires you to keep those exposure records um, for the length of employment, uh, plus I believe it's 20 years. Um, and the, the requirement for that is found uh, in 1910.1020 for exposure records. SDSs can be part of your uh, exposure records. So again, I'm sorry that wasn't the easiest question to answer, um, but hopefully that gives you, you know, a starting point there. All right, now let's look at what you should document regarding your safety data sheets. As shown on this slide, you should include the name or job title of the person responsible for obtaining and maintaining the SDSs. Now, many companies have found it convenient to include on their purchase orders the name and address of the person designated in their company to receive SDSs to help maintain a complete set. You have to maintain in your workplace the most current version of the SDS provided by the supplier. When a new SDS is received, your responsible person should check it against your chemical inventory and against the version of the SDSs that you have in your file. If it's a newer version, then you replace the older version um, and make it readily available to employees. At this point, though, be sure to check the new SDSs for any new hazard or protective information because that could in, uh, affect your HAZCOM training. It could affect the PPE required. It uh, could affect how you dispose of waste. So there are, there are a lot of things that could change if, if an SDS changes. You should also describe in your written program how you maintain SDSs in your workplace and how the employees can access them. So you can keep SDSs in a binder um, or you can keep them on computers as long as employees have immediate access to the information without having to leave their work area. If you do keep the SDSs electronically, then there has to be an adequate backup system in place in case there's a power outage or if the equipment fails or there's some other emergency uh, that, that could affect how those SDSs are stored. You, can, you must also ensure that employees are trained on how to use the system and how to access the SDSs and how to obtain any hard copies of the SDSs if they want them. Now, in the event of a medical emergency, those hard copy SDSs have to be immediately available to medical personnel. Now, in most cases, you can just print those out and you're just fine. Now, a question we often get from employers is if they need to maintain a copy of each SDS for the same or similar product, something like a paint or a glue comes to mind, uh, if it comes from different vendors. So the answer is yes, OSHA does expect you to retain those SDSs from different vendors. And finally, your program also should describe the procedure for reporting a missing SDS. During an inspection, OSHA will interview employees and will ask them if they know the location of the SDSs and what to do if an SDS is missing or if they don't understand the information there. 
if SDSs are provided on a company website, OSHA will determine if all employees have access and if they all know how to use the system. So really important to know that and keep that in mind. Continuing with your written program requirements on SDSs, your program should also include the procedure you'll follow when SDSs are not received at the time of the first shipment. Now be aware, in the event that a manufacturer, importer, or distributor does not provide an SDS with the first shipment of a chemical, well, in that case, you should contact the supplier and see if you can obtain that, that SDS. Do that as soon as possible. OSHA requires that the manufacturer or importer provide this information when you request it. If you can't obtain a compliant data sheet from a supplier, then you need to request the assistance of your local OSHA office. If it applies, your program should include a list of chemicals without SDSs and copies of the request letters you sent to the manufacturer or supplier for your records. And you know, that shows a good faith effort on your part. Finally, if you generate SDSs internally, then you have to outline the procedure for updating the SDSs when new and significant health information is found on those chemicals. All right, while we're on the topic of SDSs, let's take a look at how you maintain your SDSs. Do you maintain them electronically, on paper, uh, both, or maybe you're not sure? All right, while we're waiting for results, let's talk a little bit about MSDSs. You may have material safety data sheets or MSDSs on hand for products that were not recently received. In a letter of interpretation, OSHA says that they won't issue citations if employers maintain MSDSs when SDSs haven't been received. As long as you're maintaining the most current version of the MSDS or the SDS from the chemical manufacturer, importer, distributor, um, you are in compliance. All right, so let's see if maybe those uh, poll results have come in. All right, so 30% of you keep them electronically, 15% in paper, 51% both and 3% are not sure. So that is pretty much what I'd expect and what we're hearing from most employers that they, they like to have the convenience of the electronic SDSs, but really do like to have that paper copy back up also. So they're doing both. So thank you so much everyone for, for taking that poll. All right. And let's go on to employee training. So your written program uh, should identify the name or job title of the person responsible for conducting training. OSHA doesn't specify who can conduct HAZCOM training, and there really isn't a, a formal certification required to do so. As the employer, you can determine who is qualified to do the training for you. However, OSHA does expect that the trainer has the knowledge and understanding to present the information so that it's understandable to all employees. And here's a really important point. It has to be specific to your workplace. Now, you should identify which employees will receive training, 
Um, and if you are planning on training all employees, that needs to be stated in your program. The HAZCOM standard requires you to train employees who are exposed to hazardous chemicals under normal conditions of use and in foreseeable emergencies. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the regulation defines exposure or exposed to mean that an employee is subjected in the course of employment to a chemical that's a physical or health hazard, and it includes potential exposure. Potential, in this case, means accidental or possible. Subjective, in terms of health hazards, includes any route of entry. Foreseeable emergency, as defined by the regulations, means any potential occurrence, uh, such as um, something like equipment failure, rupture of containers, um, failure of control equipment that could result in, in an uncontrolled release of a hazardous chemical into your workplace. Training must include temporary employees also who may be exposed to hazardous chemicals. Under the HAZCOM standard, the staffing agency is expected to provide generic hazard training and information concerning categories of chemicals that the temp employees may encounter. Host employers, on the other hand, are responsible for providing site-specific hazard training as required by the standard. So if you have some employees who are occasionally in an area where chemicals are stored or used, and you're not really sure if they're exposed, um, you wanna include them in your training program. Those employees who encounter hazardous chemicals only in non-routine isolated instances, um, for instance, office workers, uh, bank tellers, those you don't have to uh, include in your HAZCOM training. Now you may wish to describe the format of your training program. For example, uh, will you use DVDs? Will you use classroom instruction? interactive video, uh, online training, or will you use a combination of all of those things? And then if you have handouts, include copies of handouts that you provide to employees also. You can provide employees information on training through whatever means are, are best for you and best for them. Now there's always going to have to be some site-specific training. That would include informing employees of the location and uh, the, the availability of the written program and where the SDSs are located. All of those things are very specific to your workplace. But beyond that, any methods of presenting material that meet the objectives of the HAFCOM program can be used. So you can use classroom instruction or computer-based learning. Now keep in mind, training must be conducted in a manner and in a language that employees can understand. So if they receive job instructions in a language other than English, uh, then the training and information uh, to be conveyed under the standard will also need to be conducted in that same language. Always consider the education and technical background of, of employees and just you know, make sure that they completely understand the information that's being given to them. Um, for example, if employees have low literacy, you can consider verbal instruction versus reading documents. Um, you know, and, and you can ask uh, employees to help you. Say uh, you have dual language employees, 
you can ask them to to help you convey information uh, to employees where English isn't their best language. So you do have a lot of options there, but you do want to make sure um, that your, your training is understandable to your employees. And it's important that you create a climate where employees feel free to ask questions, and that's going to help you ensure that that information is understood. It really is important to OSHA that this information is conveyed in a way that employees can understand. Now let's take a closer look at what you should include when it comes to the elements of your training program. So basically this means, what are you going to talk about in your employee training program? Specifically, OSHA says employees must be informed of the methods and observations that may be used to detect the presence or release of a hazardous chemical in the work area. So that's something like monitoring conducted by the employer um, using continuous monitoring devices or using the visual appearance or odor of hazardous chemicals uh, when they're released. Another training element is the physical health and other hazards of the chemicals in the work area. Be aware that training does not need to be conducted on each specific chemical found in the workplace. It can be conducted by the categories of hazards. So you can train on say, all the carcinogens in the workplace or all the sensitizers or all the acutely toxic agents. You can say you have you know, 20 chemicals that uh, are considered carcinogens you don't have to do specific training on all 20 chemicals. You could have just one big training on carcinogens. Um, and and that, uh, I think that helps a lot with training. Another element uh, you need to train on, the measures employees can take to protect themselves from the hazards. And that includes specific procedures that you have implemented to protect them from exposures to hazardous chemicals. So those would be things like appropriate work practices you have in place. What are your emergency procedures? Uh, what personal protective equipment do employees have to use? And then finally, you know, use the details of your hazard communication program. So, uh, you know, include an explanation of your labeling system, uh, of your SDSs, and how to obtain and use appropriate hazard information the location and availability of your written program, and then the hazards of non-routine tasks and the hazards of those unlabeled pipes that we talked about earlier. All right, your description of employee training should also include the procedures to train employees at the time of their initial assignment. And then you also need to train when a new hazard is introduced into the workplace. For example, will safety department personnel track the training and retraining, or will area supervisors do that? The procedure to train employees when they're potentially exposed to chemicals used by other employers on multi-employer work sites also needs to be addressed. And then finally, you may wish to describe how training is documented, such as a copy of a, a training attendance sheet signed by employees upon completion of their training. Now, HAZCOM 
does not require you to maintain records of employee training, but many employers choose to do so. And as we all know in safety, if it isn't documented, it didn't happen, right? Uh, by keeping those training records, you can ensure that all employees have received appropriate and timely training. And those training records also help to demonstrate to OSHA that you're complying with the training requirement. Now, keep in mind, even if you do document that training, if OSHA goes out and, and talks to the employees and finds out that they don't understand uh, the, where to find SDSs or how to read them, um, even if you have that documented, OSHA is, is not going to consider those employees trained. So it needs to be kind of a combination. The employees have to be able to answer those questions. They have to understand their training. Um, and then we also recommend that you do uh, document that training. That can help you out a lot. Okay, so let's take a poll on that. To the best of your knowledge, does your HAVCOM training go over the content and availability of your written program. All right, and while we're waiting, waiting for those poll results, um, I'll take a, a training question. The HAVCOM standard says in part that employers shall provide employees with effective information on training. All right, so you might be wondering there, what does OSHA consider to be effective? In a letter of interpretation, OSHA says information and training provided to employees should allow them to perform their work in a safe and healthful manner that complies with OSHA requirements. And the information is presented in a manner they're capable of understanding in both language and vocabulary perspective. Not enough just to complete training, training must be effective. If training is inadequate and employees don't understand it, OSHA citations must be issued. Inspectors will ask employees questions, and if employees can't respond properly, even if they've been through documented training, OSHA can cite you. So that's kind of what I was talking about before with, even if you're documenting it, if employees can't answer those questions to OSHA, um, that can get you into trouble. All right, so let's see those results. Okay, so 72% of you do include information on uh, training information on your HAVCOM program, 7% no, and 20% not sure. So thank you again for taking that poll. I appreciate that. All right. So while OSHA doesn't require that you evaluate your training program, you may consider doing so to ensure that it is effective for your employees. And we just talked about why it's important to have an effective program. Consider including in your written program a discussion of your evaluation or your feedback process to gather information from employees on the training they received. You know, think about what formats might work better and the value of what they learned. This evaluation could be in the form of a sheet to be filled out by employees after the training. Um, it could also include observation on how the training has affected employee behavior. For example, if employees have better compliance with use of protective measures, say they're, they're using their gloves uh, when it's appropriate, that could factor into your evaluation of the program. If employees are not interested in the training as it's conducted, or if employees aren't motivated um, and, and don't show an increased knowledge of the hazards and the use of the protective measures they need to take, well, 
In that case, it might be necessary to review and revise your training so that you get a better outcome from it. Now, OSHA does not require refresher training, but refresher training is an opportunity to review your HAVCOM program and your training. Providing training once and then assuming that, you know, it's going to last for several years and employees are still going to, to know the hazards of those chemicals or know their, their role in the HAVCOM program, that's a pretty risky assumption. So really, it's, it's wise for you to set up a system for periodic retraining. That does not have to be annual, doesn't have to be a full-blown training session. You know, something like a monthly or quarterly safety meeting um, during those meetings, you know, remind your employees of the training topics. Uh, ask them where the SDSs are. Have them, you know, answer questions that OSHA might ask them. And, uh, you know, talk about what, what the labeling, your labeling system is. Ask them what the pictograms represent. Um, and then remember that if you do provide refresher training, you want to cover that also in your written program. All right, let's turn to the chemical inventory. Your written program must include a list of the hazardous chemicals known to be present in the workplace. And that's your chemical inventory or your chemical list. It can be maintained by work area or it can be maintained uh, for the workplace as a whole. The inventory must include all hazardous chemicals that are present, even if those chemicals are in storage. Compiling the inventory for the entire workplace might be the, the most suitable for very small facilities, but for larger workplaces, it might be more convenient to compile lists of hazardous chemicals by work area and then assemble them together as the list for your workplace. Um, and as new chemicals are purchased, you want to update your list. The chemical inventory has to be made available upon request to employees or to their designated representatives. And of course, you have to make it available to OSHA when uh, asked. To prepare a comprehensive list, perform a department by department search for every chemical present in your workplace. Include cleaning supplies, things like bathroom and window cleaners, grounds and maintenance chemicals, um, things like weed killers and fertilizers, uh, vendor samples that are being used on a trial basis, fuels, paints, and chemicals used in daily operations also. Be sure to check in all cabinets and closets and in other storage areas where chemicals may be hiding. Now, sometimes people think of chemicals as being only liquids in containers. But the HAVCOM standard covers chemicals in all physical forms. So that includes liquids, but it also includes solids and gases and vapors and fumes and mist. And that's whether they're contained or not. The hazardous nature of the chemical and the potential for exposure are the factors that determine whether a chemical is covered by the HAVCOM standard. In addition to spotting chemicals in containers and pipes, you also want to think about chemicals that are generated during work operations. So it's something like a welding fumes or dust um, or exhaust. Those are all sources of chemical exposures. Some other suggestions for preparing your chemical inventory include, uh, you know, reading hazard labels provided by suppliers. 
making a list of all chemicals that are potentially hazardous at the site, noting the storage and use locations of the products, and then noting the hazards as found on the label. And then purchasing records can also help you out. Before purchasing chemicals, review the hazards of the chemicals and evaluate if maybe a less hazardous chemical uh, could be substituted for that more hazardous chemical. And then while compiling your inventory, consider listing the substances separately by department. Um, you'll find it, it does make it easier to conduct employee training to know which chemicals are used in which department. The inventory may be kept by using the product identifier from the FCS. Uh, it may be kept by product name or number as long as the identity used on the list matches that used on the SDSs and the label. And those documents need to be able to be cross-referenced. Now, OSHA doesn't specifically require that your inventory contain anything other than the product identifier. However, in addition to including the inventory in your written program, it can be used for other purposes. Uh, for example, OSHA requires employers to keep chemical exposure records such as uh, the MSDSs and the FCSs uh, for 30 years after the chemical is no longer used. And that's kind of what I, I talked about before. I think I misspoke and said 20 years, it's 30 years. In lieu of keeping the MSDSs or the FCSs for 30 years, you can use your chemical inventory as the exposure record if you add the dates that the chemicals were used and where they were used in your facility. Now, EPA also requires you to report your chemicals under its Emergency Planning and Community Right to Know Act, also known as EPCRA. Under SDS reporting, you can use your chemical inventory if it lists all hazardous chemicals present at your facility. And there, there are some threshold levels that EPCRA uses, um, and, and it also kind of groups chemicals by specific health and physical hazards. But your, your SDSs that you're using for HAZCOM can really help you out with that EPA program. Your chemical inventory can also be cross-referenced to your toxic release inventory or your Tier 2 reports. And those are also things under uh, EPA programs. And that can help you make sure all your chemicals have been accounted for in those really important reports. The Toxic Substances Control Act, or TOSCA, also requires that you create a written HAVCOM program for certain chemical substances. So all of these things kind of cross over into each other. Finally, your chemical inventory also can be used to decide which chemicals to dispose of, as well as identify potentially unsafe storage areas at your facility or techniques that you may be using. Uh, for example, some chemicals should not be stored near each other because of incompatibilities or potential reactions. All right, so we kind of talked about multi-employer work sites a little bit. Let's really get down into the nitty gritty with those. Where there's more than one employer operating on a site and employees may be exposed to the chemicals used by other employers, your written HAZCOM program must address how on-site access to SDSs will be provided to the other employers. Now, you don't have to physically give the other employers the SDSs, but you have to inform others of the locations of where your SDSs will be maintained and, uh, you know, 
you could keep them somewhere, say, as the general employer's trailer. You also have to address how these employers will be informed of any needed precautionary measures. So what protections do those employees need to take from uh, chemicals on the site? And then you also have to address how other employers will be informed of your in-house labeling system. Uh, OSHA allows you to decide on the method of information exchange that you wanna use. Each employer on a multi-employer worksite must make a written HAZCOM program available to their own employees. And that's whether they generate the hazard or the hazard is generated by other employers on the site. If a guest employer intends their employees to obtain hazard communication information from other employers written programs, that has to be stated in that guest employer's program. So OSHA says in a letter of interpretation, and this one's from 1991, that employees of the guest employer have a right to know and access the information that must be contained in their employer's hazard communication program. The methods their employer is going to use to communicate chemical hazard information to them must be set forth in writing in their own employer's written HAZCOM program, even if that method involves relying on a host employer's written program. So that, that letter of interpretation gives you some pretty good information there. Although the HAZCOM standard doesn't require you to evaluate and reassess your written program, the program must remain current and it must remain relevant to you and your employees. The regulation says you must maintain your written program. So the best way to achieve that is to review it periodically and, and that just makes sure it's still working and it's meeting the objectives that you, you set for it. And then if it's not, you know, revise it uh, to address any changed conditions in the workplace. You wanna consider such things as, as new chemicals that you may have or new hazards, updated hazards from chemicals that are currently in use, changes in processes and that affect exposures and required changes to PPE or training. In addition to federal OSHA HAZCOM, you also have to comply with many state and territory uh, requirements. And uh, these state plan states have to have standards that are at least as effective as OSHA's rules. Now this slide highlights some of the most common compliance trouble spots regarding the written HAZCOM program. During an inspection, OSHA will confirm that you have a written HAZCOM program and that it addresses all of the required topics for your workplace. So check out that slide that can help you out. And then I, we did promise a checklist. So this is a look at all of those things that OSHA requires in the HAZCOM program. So I know we're kind of uh, running a little late here, so um, I just want to make sure that, that you got to this checklist and that you're, you're taking away a, a better understanding of your written program requirements. So hopefully this slide can help you out. All right, and I want to address a quick question that came in about our new HAZCOM Safety Management Service. This service provides support and guidance for these core areas of your HAZCOM program. So again, if you'd like more information on the JJ Keller HAZCOM Chemical Safety Management Service, 
Let us know by selecting your interests on the poll. And as a thank you, we'll email a copy of our brand new compliance brief, Hazard Communication, the Right to Know Requirements. I just want to let you know that, uh, you know, even if we didn't get to your questions, you can um, send those to us and uh, we are happy to, to answer questions for you. So, um, Alan, did any, any questions come in? Oh, yeah, we had a, uh, we had a number of questions. And uh, thank you. I know this is a difficult and uh, sometimes confusing uh, topic for employers. So this is a great presentation. And before we start the q and I want to remind everyone about the evaluation survey we're asking you to complete. Uh, your input is important because it'll help us improve our future webcast. And so our, our first question, um, this is actually a combination of a couple of questions. Is there a minimum number of employees for the written program requirement to kick in? And is that minimum for the whole company or is that for a location or establishment? Oh, that's a great question. Um, there is no minimum um, number of employees for the HASCOM program to kick in. So if you have one employee um, and, and you have hazardous chemicals, um, you need to know that that written, written program um, does need to be uh, completed. Um, our next question, um, what's the best way to prepare chemical inventory and how often should we update that? Okay, what's the best way to prepare a chemical inventory? That's a, a good question. Um, and, and probably the, the best and, and easiest way uh, would be to uh, survey the entire workplace. You, you can work systematically through your facility. Um, and then, you know, remember that, that you want to look at, you know, places where chemicals could be hiding. Um, and then also note chemicals in all their possible forms. So, you know, liquids, uh, gases, solids, all those things that we kind of talked about. Uh, think about chemicals that are generated in operations like welding, and then be sure to check um, those areas that, that we kind of talked about before where, where those chemicals might be hiding, cabinets, closets, other storage areas. The other part of that, how often should we, we update that, that inventory? Um, okay, good question. So uh, OSHA doesn't have specific time requirements for updating a chemical inventory but you are required to update it when you receive new chemicals or if you stop using uh, certain chemicals, you wanna update that also. Um, so and anytime that you get a new chemical in, that's, that's really when you need to take a look at it. Okay, well, thank you everyone. Unfortunately, we have run out of time. I'm sorry that we didn't get to everyone's questions, but unanswered questions will be forwarded to today's sponsor. Again, we also hope you take the time to share your feedback through our survey. This ends today's Safety and Health Magazine webcast. I'd like to thank Lisa Newberger, Rachel Krubsack, our sponsor, JJ Keller, and of course, everyone who joined us today. Take care and be safe.